0: What's going on, Maximal Being, Doc Mock here with Maximal Being Nutrition, Fitness, and Gut Health. You know, a lot of you have been sitting at home, you're bored, trying to find things to fill your time. So a lot of people are picking up some bad vices, whether that be alcohol, drugs, or even just that evening chocolate. Today's podcast is we're gonna key into the concept of addiction. Joining me today is my amazing co-host, Jackie P., and then a longtime friend, Chris Dorian. Chris Dorian is a licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor and certified clinical supervisor. Chris is is also the founder of Know Your Why Recovery. And as always, I'm Doc Mock. I'm a therapeutic endoscopist, which is a GI doctor that practices a lot of uh, procedures related to cancer. I'm also a functional medicine practitioner, um, and I practice here in Cleveland, Ohio. And joining me today, Jackie P.
1: Hello, Maximal Beans. It's uh, I, Jackie P, your layman. Um, and I'm here just to make sure that uh, Doc Mock and Chris keep it down to earth uh, with their conversation as we get into today's discussion. And to you, Chris.
2: Hey, thank you. First of all, I just want to say thank you to, to both of you uh, for this opportunity. Um Especially, uh, you know, um, I, lo- I love talking about this stuff. I could go on forever. Um, and then to tag in kind of uh, know your why, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, it's always great to uh, get that information out there because I'm a, I'm a big fan of education, especially when it comes to defeating like stigma and awareness. So um, as Doc uh, said, I am a licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor in the state of New Jersey. And, um, you know, pretty much since college, I was interested in the field of psychology, mental health, and um, I kind of just fell into addictions, or at least I thought I fell into addictions, but nobody in this field really kind of just falls into it. Um, you know, as you guys are probably learning and know already, and, and same with the listeners, uh, nobody kind of gets out of this world unscathed by, uh, mental health or addictions. And there, you always, if it's not you yourself, you always know somebody, a family member, a friend, and I mean, that's really escalated too for certain populations over the last couple of years. So, um, I always found an interest in it. And, um, you know, after getting a master's degree, I aggressively pursued the, um, licensure in uh, alcohol and drug counseling for the state of new jersey and then uh, so i've been doing that work now consistently since about 2006 and i've had my licensure since 2012 and uh, in my free time which i don't have i started know your why recovery and uh, know your why is essentially just a um the aim was to create a community, a space on social media, and now a website where people can find information about mental health addictions, wellness. Um, there's also resources, uh, unofficial referrals, things of that nature. And the idea was that there's like a safe safe space where people could come together, uh, for that, whether it be the person who is in need of those things, uh, the family member, the friend, or the professional working in the field. I do have to say though, that, um, you know, know Your Why is not meant as a replacement for counseling, therapy, uh, self-help groups, anything like that. So if you or a loved one feels like you need help, then please seek the appropriate um, medical attention from professionals. Uh, you can find resources to that out on the page as well. And if it's an emergency, as always, dial your, your local emergency line, which in most areas is 911. Um, that being said, I'll kick it back to you, I guess, Doc. And again, thank you for the opportunity.
0: Uh, Such such a pleasure to hear your thoughts. You know, I I always appreciate our camaraderie and community in college. So it's really great to see, you know, you develop such a wonderful program online. I I learned so much reading your content. You cannot supplement your way to health, but there are things that we need to add to our lives that can maximize our pathway to wellness. The American diet is virtually devoid of omega-3 fatty acids, which play a major role in cardiovascular disease gut permeability, and mental health. Personally, I take omega-3s every night, and iHerb is the best place for clean, natural sources of supplements. I love the ZenWise omega-3 fatty acid supplement, which is free of fish burps and good for the environment. Head on over to maximalbeing.com slash iHerb, that's I-H-E-R-B, and enter the code B as in boy, D as in dog, B as in boy, 5528 and receive 10% off your orders for all supplements. Maximize your supplements with iHerb. Welcome to Maximal Being, a GI doc and ICU nurse that break down the science so you can exceed your gut health, nutrition, and fitness goals. So, Let's smash the bro science and optimizing your health with your hosts, Doc Mock and R.N. Graham. Yeah, so kicking it off, I, I thought that we would first just go through what the concept of addiction actually means. So what is addiction? And from a medical perspective, it's kind of this dysregulation that occurs from your executive functioning, meaning those conscious decisions that you make every day. And then those things in your reptilian brain that give you satisfaction that give you that immediate yeah. kick or hit of, uh, of neuro hormones. There's two main players here. Uh, neurochemically, one is dopamine and dopamine gives you that urge, right? It's that addictive sort of hormone serotonin is the other one. That's that feel good hormone. We've talked about that before, uh, both on the sleep podcast, which I encourage all of you to check out as well as our talk, uh, about alcohol. Um, and then also entering into the discussion today, as we'll get to later are things like GABA that kind of calms you down, um, acetylcholine, and then also cortisol, which is your stress hormone. So going back to, to Chris, you know, what do you think, um, is the way that your clients or patients describe addiction and how would you describe addiction? Uh, that is a
3: loaded question. Um. So what I'll do is I'll give you uh, not an official definition, but I'll give you a a definition that aligns with the current medical model, which is the most accepted view right now. So the APA, the AMA, all of that view addiction as a a medical disease. Um, And what I found is that other models, uh, many times they're saying the same thing, just using different language. And everyone kind of fights over who's right when they're all kind of right and they're all kind of wrong in some ways. So... Um, my patients would say that uh, addiction sucks. And, um, you know, it's like the worst thing they've had had to deal with and they wish it upon nobody. I don't know if you'd say that's their definition, but the, uh, the more medical definition would be uh, a chronic relapsing brain disease characterized by um, compulsive seeking and drug use or compulsive behavior, uh, despite harmful consequences. Right. So that disease concept has a couple of key parts. And um, one is it's primary. uh, So it's an illness in and of itself. Um, It's chronic. So it's long lasting. It's not acute. Uh, It's progressive. Uh, Addiction gets worse without treatment or recovery. And there's actually kind of a, you can almost kind of see the progression. Although for some people, it could be as quick as one year. For others, it takes like 20 years. Um, It's relapsing. So like many other illnesses uh, and diseases, uh, without proper treatment, proper recovery, you will relapse. Um, And sometimes even you're doing all the right stuff, you might find that relapse happens, although um, there's some debate what exactly relapse means in the field. And then it's potentially fatal. Um, So if you look at it from those terms, it definitely falls into like that medical disease concept. There's some other aspects of it, such as it's not caused by uh, volition. It's not willpower. Um, some people would disagree with that, but in the, at least in the medical terms of things, um, you know, we know that there's some real biological changes that go on, um, which kind of adds to that medical model and definition. And some of those biological, biological processes might have even have been present before the addiction um which i believe that you'll be talking about a little bit in this well we will be um you know uh, i will say that medical model is not the only viewpoint as i said before um but it is what is most widely accepted right now and many treatment programs and even funding are based off of this medical kind of disease concept model so um doc jackie
0: yeah i think that was a really great overview of things and um you know, there definitely is a neurohormonal component to this, this set of diseases or this kind of disease construct. Um, you know, if we're looking at the neurobiology, the parts of the brain that control different functions, right? There's, there's the cortex, right? So when, whenever you're looking at a picture of a brain, that's the biggest part of the brain. It's that part up top with all the little wrinkles in it. And that's where your executive function. So the things that like I'm going to write a paper. I'm going to read this book. That's where a lot of those main decisions are occurring. But in addiction, there's a lot of other players uh, in, in the disease state. So, you know, the median prefrontal cortex is arousal, right? So anytime you're experiencing a high degree of emotion into that particular area, that's the median prefrontal cortex. So right near those wrinkles. There's also the amygdala that's again, that's your reptilian brain. So if you've ever been super stressed and your body just kind of kicks into this overdrive, you're cycling those thoughts and there's no logic behind it, that's the amygdala. And then in terms of addiction, the ventral striatum, that's the part where you're feeling a lot of the um, benefits and sources of the addictions occur. So it's this interplay between these main areas in the brain uh, that, you know, Bring addiction out. Um, genetically, people have varying size brains, pieces of the brain that are bigger than others. And people also have varying degrees of their ability to make certain neuro- neurohormones, dopamine, serotonin, et cetera, as well as break those hormones down. And so some people are actually more predisposed to having addiction. So, um, you know, Chris, in your experience, you know. Do you see really young people experience these things? Have you noted any sort of trends in families? Um, Have you noted those genetic differences that can occur?
2: Yeah. So first off with age, um, a lot of the groundwork for addiction is laid in early ages. I don't have the data in front of me, but... um, many people start on that path of substance use uh, prior to like in their adolescence. Um, so prior to the age of 18 or at least around there and what we know about like brain development, even though it's not as concrete as it used to be, right? The idea is like what, 24, 25, the brain is fully developed, which we know is not exactly true because our, our brain is very uh, neuroplastic and can adapt and it can, it can grow in different ways. Um, but when substance use starts at those younger ages, it kind of sets the stage for potential of future problems, especially if there is uh, excessive use or use where it's problematic. In terms of heredity, um, it's been common in the field uh, for a very long time to note that uh, family families tend to have, if it's not addiction problems, kind of generational, it's some type of mental health problem or addiction. So, um, I'm not going to say that there it's necessarily like cross-sensitive, but you know, great grandma might not have been, for lack of a better term, an alcoholic, um, but she would disappear for like months at a time, and the family would say that she's on vacation, and she was actually in the uh, psychiatric hospital. Um, so, you you kind of find that if it wasn't addiction, it was probably mental health, or, or the other way around. Um, and now the data is starting to show that they're, they're finding some real biological markers as to why that may occur. Um, and, you know, from what we know about substance use itself, the substance use itself sometimes actually almost like turns on a switch or turns on these markers um, and kind of sets the person in a different path. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's, it's there, right? So there are people who maybe develop addiction problems uh, later in life, um, but generally, that state, if you dig deep enough—you'll find that that stage is probably set when they were younger.
1: You know, you know, you know, Chris, you, you did mention early on about you know treating the 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 the, the disease of addiction, right? Um, and you know, can you can you shed some light a little bit about the evolution of the stigma, right? I remember when I was young. I'll, you know we all remember dare and it was like just <laughs> say no you know it's that easy right and then um you know now I, I feel like there's been evolution where you know we are recognizing this is something that is right needs to be treated right like a, like any other disease um so can you speak to you a little bit about the stigma of mental health um is uh-huh. and and uh you know how how it affects uh addiction and also you know some of the the treatments um, that you may be helping with uh, the folks you help, or, you know, you may uh, point them in right that direction.
2: Right. Uh, you got a couple hours? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so first off, I'll just preface this by um, a lot of what I discussed today is a very westernized viewpoint of addiction, substance use, treatment, recovery. Um, different cultures have different views of it. This is kind of like the the prevalent views in America and most of uh, kind of like the westernized world in Europe and things like that. So, um, up until the middle of last century, there, there really wasn't treatment. People didn't understand addiction. So the idea was that if you were somebody who struggled with a substance or was an addict or whatever, you, you probably were viewed as like a town drunk, village idiot, or mentally sick. Um, and your fate was, and people still use this term, like jails, institutions, or death. And the thing is, there there really wasn't institutions back then other than the psychiatric hospitals. So if somebody wasn't constantly locked up or dead, they were thrown into psychiatric hospitals uh, without this understanding of how addiction works. Um Now, AA, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, 12-step programs, they're not necessarily treatment, um, and I wouldn't call them treatment. They're an important part of recovery for like millions of people, and there's plenty of people who would not have found sobriety or recovery without them, uh, but I'm not going to refer to them as treatment. However, um, there are treatment models that are based off of 12-step philosophy, and the reason why I note this is because it was really Alcoholics Anonymous in like the 1930s when it started with uh, Bill Wilson, Dr. Bob. I'm not going to go into a whole history of that, but they set the stage for addiction treatment, right? So um, when they started finding Alcoholics Anonymous and that started growing, uh, people started recognizing that. Wait a second, like, like substance use, this this is a problem. Addiction is a problem for people, and and you know what? It can be it can be managed like other medical illnesses and things like that. Um, and what you had was from that your first kind of treatment programs, especially residential treatment programs, and a lot of the early ones were no more than um, like with withdrawal management plus twelve step groups. So again, it wasn't like a whole lot of treatment, right? It was it was almost like a crisis and triage that that turned into treatment and over time kind of molded. So, um, big groups like Hazelden kind of embraced this 12-step model and made it a treatment model, even though it was really just a recovery model. Um, so, you know, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, uh, treatment started becoming a thing, and I think it was in the 60s, I could be wrong, that the uh, American Medical Association adopted the disease model of addiction. From there um, we've seen the field progress in different ways uh, some people would say it's still the same but there's there's been a lot of progression so um, in the 60s you also had the uh, methadone kind of became a, a treatment option for people with opiate use disorders and it's still considered the gold standard although there's a lot of stigma surrounding that. Um, And then, uh, you know, in the 70s, you kind of had a lot of more widespread like marijuana use. The 80s was kind of like the what was called then is like the crack epidemic. Um, And when you talk about stigma, um, the 80s was a a dark time for substance abuse treatment and stigma because the crack epidemic was essentially, that was seen as like a Black America problem, right? Like, it didn't matter that all these rich white people were using cocaine in the clubs. It, It was you know, African-Americans with crack, right? That was like the evil. Um, And if you go back in our country's history further than that, before the 30s, before a lot of our legislation and laws about substance use were written with kind of like these racist um, and discriminatory undertones, That's why I asked if you had like a couple hours (laughs) because I spent forever talking about that. I mean, early marijuana laws and early cocaine laws, they were straight up racist. Um, And that was the intent, right? So um, going back to where we were right now, there's a lot of attention on the opioid epidemic. And that has helped immensely to defeat some of the stigma around... Addiction, because people are like, hey, my neighbor had a problem, that kid's son had a problem, my doctor, my this lawyer had a problem. And everyone's kind of seeing it as like, hey, uh, addiction is non-discriminatory, it hits everybody, you know, equally, it doesn't care. Um, but the the thing is like, uh, there's been epidemics long before that. It's just that it wasn't hidden like white America. Right. So, (laughs) um, some good comes out of that because now like funding and attention goes to it. And like I said, stigma is being reduced. Uh, but in reality, um, I think if the data still holds up over the last couple of years is like, um, cocaine still the biggest, uh, killer of African-Americans other than like, uh, Heart disease and medical conditions um and now we have these growing methamphetamine problems and the what's happening behind the scenes that a lot of people aren't noticing is that the next epidemic is really the benzodiazepines like xanax valium clonopin all of that stuff um so we've made a lot of strides in terms of stigma uh, for various reasons um Again, positive outcome. Although you know there is a lot of deep uh, kind of like socioeconomic stuff and discriminatory practices rooted in it, um, I can only hope that you know as we continue to educate and continue to see that addiction is non-discriminatory uh, in who it impacts. It may be discriminatory in who gets treatment and access to treatment and things like that, but um, who it impacts, uh, it's non-discriminatory. So that should only help further defeat stigma. And, and as we have conversations like this as well,
0: so. That was uh, that was really deep. I mean, you know, it's unfortunate that the the historical perspective of what it has taken to bring you know this real condition to the forefront. And I will tell you, where I trained had a huge opiate epidemic. Um, you know, not only the uh, prescribed opiates, but also intravenous opiates that people were purchasing off the street. And uh, I remember seeing people get thrown out of cars who were overdosed in front of the emergency department as I walked across to, to, you know, my after afternoon meetings as a trainee. And, and I do think, you know, addiction is an all powerful presence. It's not just a willpower thing. It overtakes your executive functioning. You know, I've had people that they lose limbs because of their addiction. They they lose lives. They lose the lives of loved ones. They destroy their jobs. I mean, there is there are real consequences to this thing, and, and it is not something that a lot of people can just prevent due to willpower. Right. I can I can speak a little bit to the executive functioning
2: part, if if I may. Um, so you mentioned all these fancy brain areas uh, before, <laughs> and um, I probably will get some of them wrong, but I'll try my best. Um, <laughs> so using rats. monkeys because it's always rats and monkeys right but using rats um, science has been able to determine the exact areas of the brain that addiction hits right so you mentioned kind of our executive area you mentioned the reptilian brain Um, our reward circuit our reward pathway actually kind of cuts through all of that so it starts in the ventral tegmental area um, to the nucleus accumbens then to that uh, prefrontal cortex and What happened, what they did was they kind of used electro stimulation needles and they found that, like, if we stimulate this area, the rats will keep dosing themselves with like heroin or cocaine or whatever drug they're studying. If they move that needle like less than a millimeter over off of that pathway, they stop asking for it. So that's how they determined like the reward pathways directly impacted by, um, you know, uh, substances of, of abuse. And you mentioned dopamine and serotonin, and the the joke that I've heard is kind of like, uh, technically, everything you love in this world comes down to two things, and those two things are dopamine and serotonin. I mean, we know there's like hundreds more neurotransmitters, but those are the two big ones you always hear. Um, and those two neurotransmitters are specifically impacted by that reward pathway. Um, dopamine more so than serotonin, because dopamine is kind of like that reward chemical where serotonin is more of like a mood regulator. Um, But almost all substances of abuse and even some behaviors that become addictive uh, all activate that pathway. And what it does is it kind of tricks the brain into thinking like, I need this for survival. So the thing that's actually killing the person is the thing that the brain is saying, you need to live. Um, And that's where people's executive functioning gets taken over because now they have choice of like food, drugs, or like family drugs. Um, And the brain just says, Hey man, you need the drugs, forget everything else. And it's, it's, it's a lot different. It's a lot. um, It's hard to kind of explain this because somebody who maybe doesn't experience it or doesn't have a family member with it, they're kind of like, how can you choose between like drugs and food or like your kid and, and drugs? Like, but your, your brain is not, you know, it's not letting you almost make that decision at times. Um, although there are people who dispute that because they'll say, well, I never saw somebody shoot up in the back of a cop car. Um, but for everyone who said that there probably has been somebody who's shot up in the back of a cop car. So um, I mean,
1: yeah, well, it's funny you say that, uh, you know, I, I can, I can actually speak to that feeling. Um, so I have sickle cell and, uh, I mean, morphine is like Mm-hmm. Morphine is like vitamins to me. You know, I've 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 I have you know, when I go I have a whole plan to give me dilated which is extremely strong liquid and that that programming is there. You know, yeah. I I've I've been in the hospital and like literally in pain waiting for uh uh you know, my next dose and it lingers. You know, when I'm out the hospital I'm recovered right. and I'm not in pain anymore like it, it hits me a little bit and say, you know what? Like I, I want another hit of, of, of painkillers because my brain is made it tied it to you're in pain, you're in crisis. You need this to feel better. Right. And it it's, it sticks around and, you know, my, the doctors always try to write me prescriptions and, you know, you know how the opioids started, right? They give me a, a hundred pills of Oxycontin and all stuff. I, I don't even feel it, but I mean, yeah, it's, you know, and and I like to think I'm, you know, I, I have strong willpower, but I, I I recognize it. So I can only imagine people who are out there who are dealing with stress and all types right. of life factors needing to lean on these substances to, you know, get a little bit of, you know, relief, you know, in, in their own, in their own vision. Um, but, you know, thinking about the different types of treatment out there, right? Um, you know, s- since people are seeing this, right. It's hitting home. Everyone knows someone, right. Um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, can you speak to Can anyone explain that to the, to the lay folks out there like myself? Um, and, um, you know, you know, kind of walk us through that and what that looks like for someone who's going through that treatment.
2: Sure. Um, so cognitive behavioral therapy is one option. Um, the buzzword in medicine and addiction these days is evidence-based treatment or, you know, and and cognitive behavioral therapy is one of them Um, to kind of dig into it takes a a long time, but I can kind of do a basic primer. So um, to me, cognitive behavioral therapy is uh, at its core foundation. It focuses on this concept that our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions are all tied together, right? So our thoughts impact our actions and feelings. Our actions impacts our thoughts and feelings. Our feelings impact our thoughts and actions. And the idea is if you change one of those things, you change the other two. Um, usually you're changing the thought because that's the first thing that happens in the chain. Um, and the and the underlying thing with cognitive behavioral therapy for people who have uh, mental health conditions, um, addiction, Uh, issues, or even just, you know, they're struggling at times with some behaviors and things like that. The idea is that they might have, um, faulty thought patterns or irrational thought patterns. And that's why there's the need to change. Um, So, I mean, there's a laundry list of what those thought patterns are. So one example is like all or nothing thinking. So we know that the world exists in an area of gray, right? But some people have thought patterns where it's like, it's all or nothing. Other people have thought patterns where their mind goes right to worst case scenario, catastrophizing. Um, So the idea in CBT, is like you change some of those things. Um, You change those thought patterns, you examine them. And over time, you get better at examining them like in the moment. And you start to change the patterns. Um, so I can give a little bit of an example of a situation that probably a lot of people can relate to, um, even if you don't struggle with any type of mental health issue. But um, so let's say that you call or you text your significant other. and Normally, within a few minutes, they respond, sometimes right away, Right. Um, somebody who might have a faulty thought pattern, uh, whatever's causing that, whether it be their own history of thought pattern or something else is going on in their life, they might jump to something happened to them. Um, They're cheating on me, right? They get, and um, that might lead them to get a feeling about that, right? So now they're they're insecure, now they're angry, now they're worried, whatever it may be. Um, And then that's gonna dictate their actions. So they might start calling rapidly they might start firing off a bunch of texts if it's bad enough they might get in their car and go to the significant others work to make sure they're okay or they're turning on the TV and the news to see if there was a car accident or something like that right so at the root of this the idea is that like they jump to almost like worst case scenario or they jump to the betrayal scenario now for most people, that's going to be irrational thinking, right? In, unless your significant other has that history of like doing that all the time, or they're like a terrible driver, or the weather is really bad. The, the worst case scenario is possible, but it's not the probable scenario right? So CBT would work with that person in recognizing that they're jumping to that catastrophic thinking and say, hold on, put the brakes on your thinking. Let's look at the situation differently. So we go back to the beginning of the chain and okay, I text my significant other. They didn't text me back. They usually text me back right away. Um, so then you start examining like what's going on. You say, okay, well, what's a more probable, uh, scenario, then they're cheating on me or they're in a bad car accident. You say, okay, well, they're at work, so maybe they're in a meeting. Maybe they're on a phone call. Maybe their phone died and they didn't charge it. Maybe they're driving and they're doing the responsible thing by not answering back, right? So you replace it with the more rational kind of thoughts and scenarios, and then your feelings about it aren't as strong. Maybe you still have some concern or something, but then you go, you know what? It's only been four and a half minutes. What am I doing? Right. And then, you know, you, you don't feel as uh, strongly, you don't feel threatened, you don't feel as nervous. And therefore, you don't start the the manic like calling, you don't start the texting, you don't get in the car and drive off like a like a lunatic to to go see what's going on. Um, you know, and that that's kind of the type of stuff that is a, is a portion of CBT, right? And that's probably the stuff that most people would relate to if they were to engage into like CBT type treatment um, or anything like that. Would
0: I Would think- you-
1: I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. <clears throat> oh, I would say, you know, uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, a like an all or nothing type of mentality. Um, you know, that, that kind of piqued my interest because, you know, I know folks, myself, I'm guilty of it as well. <laughs> where if I'm trying to eat right and be healthy and exercise, I mean, I'm on it 100%. The second something right. knocks that off, I mean, I feel like the whole party unravels and I'm eating like junk, Yeah, I'm not working out. Like, would you say that's like the, that same thread of, of the thought process?
2: Um so in addiction they have a fancy term for that. Uh so if somebody's like doing recovery work and they're being abstinent and all that and then they relapse, they use, right? Or they do the behavior they're trying to change. The fancy word is abstinence violation effect, right? The word that everyone who's like ever entered treatment or recovery knows it as is the fuckets. Right? <laughs> so, excuse me. The- <laughs> um but yeah, so you're 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 eating healthy, you're working out, you're doing well. And then boom, you, you have uh, an extra cheat day, right. Or um, you hurt your shoulder. and Now you can't, you can't lift the way you used to or something like that. So you mail it in. You're like, Oh, I'm done, man. It's very easy to slip into that. Um, that type of thinking. I would put that in that all or nothing type thinking. Cause the way you're doing is like, you're looking at it as like success or failure, not like what I did has been successful and I messed up. Right. Or, in my path of success, I'm going to have setbacks. It's like that idea of like, you know, get knocked down seven times, get up eight. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, re- when it comes to addiction, like they say relapse is part of addiction. I don't like that terminology. I'd rather say like relapse can be part of recovery, but it doesn't have to be right. And the same thing goes for like, if you're eating healthy, you're trying to quit uh, quit smoking, which that's also uh, an addiction, but um, any type of behavior change, like, We probably idealize the behavior change we want. And when we don't follow that plan perfectly or we mess up, we're our own worst enemy. And sometimes what we do is we just shut down and we give up as opposed to saying like um, a lot of times people say, well, look at what went wrong. Um, I would say start with look at what went right. Because if you were eating right, eating healthy and exercising for a month straight and you had like never done that before, you must have done something right right so look at what you did right build off of that then look at kind of okay well where did i go wrong right was it um i was stressful that day and instead of like meditating i decided to go like get some kentucky fried chicken or something like that like what what kind of messed up your day so bad that like put you in that hole to begin with and then um you know for the future, make corrections to that. Um, and it's no it's, it's the same thing with any type of behavior change. It doesn't matter whether it's like you're getting over a substance use disorder, um, or you're just like trying to eat right. The difference might be is like with the, with the substance use disorder, we know that there's like these, these real brain changes that impact those areas. Um, but you know, when you do any type of positive behavior change, there, there's also those brain changes. They just might not be of like the same magnitude, all right, so when we're doing healthy behaviors, especially what they call keystone behaviors, um, a keystone behavior is like a, a behavior change that's usually like a positive behavior change that leads to you doing a whole bunch of other positive behavior changes. So um, I don't remember the specifics, but I'll kind of like make up an example. They did some studies and like, so somebody was trying to eat right and be healthy. And what they found was like when the person decided, okay, I'm going to eat right. They also worked out more. They also came home and they did the dishes instead of leaving them in the sink. They made the bed in the morning before they went to work. Like they did all these other behaviors that were like healthy that contributed to their overall health. So they would call, um, they would call like eating, right. Like a keystone behavior. That would be kind of like an example. I, I don't know if eating right is one, but that's, that's just to illustrate
0: keystone behavior. So I, I think you also bring up a good point, which is where, you know, if you're trying to change a behavior, linking it to another behavior yeah. is the best way to have sustainable change over time. So, right. you know, if you are trying to eat right, making sure that your food is all ready to go in the morning is eliminating the time and the preparation aspect. So there's none of that. You know, you just grab it and go, or it's already in your bag that's sitting in your car. You wake up, you get in the car, it's already there for is that you. What so you're link that what you to Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, And then also, you know, you mentioned before there, there's such a link between addiction and other, uh, psychological disease, anxiety, right. That need that, oh my God, they're not texting me back because they're cheating on me. There's a big anxiety. There's a big depression component that also go along with things, but switching gears a little bit. So, you know, CBT is certainly at the corner that is at the key to this condition, and it's not us physicians that are leading the way. Often, usually it is a therapy, a therapist like yourself that's doing the actual cognitive behavioral therapy. But as a supplement to CBT, to medical therapy, what are some of the things that our listeners can do at home to work on addiction?
2: So um, first of all, I would always emphasize if you have a problem with a substance use disorder, or you even think you might have a problem with a substance use disorder, the first step uh, should always be professional assessment and evaluation of that. Um, there's. Ah, uh, you know, even with like know your why, a lot of people kind of jump to the internet for like uh, healing and jump to the internet for ideas, and like that's great, but all of that should be a supplement. Yeah. So if you ask like about supplementary stuff, like I'm a big fan of self learning, self study. So I would say like get get the self help books, get the addiction books, uh, go online, join a support group. Um, there's a lot of different theories about addiction and what works, and and the the thing is this, like no one system or no one combination of systems is going to work for everybody. Everybody's case is unique. The truth is you probably know what's going to work for you better than anyone else does, but it'll truly take a professional to help uh, pull that out of you. Um, Some things you can do though, is uh, you can get, specialized support groups so those could be 12-step groups like i mentioned earlier alcoholics anonymous narcotics anonymous there's um smart recovery which is a little more it's a blend of like self-help and trained facilitator run um that's actually rooted in rational emotive therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy so they focus on the behavior change and the thinking patterns and stuff more so than kind of like spiritual concepts and things like that Um, there's groups for other mental health conditions the same way. Um, And you can go online, you can search these out. Some states might even have like a a listing where they're all together. The other thing you could do is um, there's other types of evidence-based therapies, which the professionals can help you with. Um, And then you can also look into different types of like holistic therapies. Um, And I kind of hate using that term because a lot of people don't fully understand what holistic means. So when I say holistic as a professional, What I mean is treating the whole body. So if you're entering treatment for an addiction, you also gotta take care of your medical needs. You also have to do things such as eat well. You have to um, possibly even replenish certain nutrients. Um, You have to take care of other co-occurring conditions you may have, whether or not they're diagnosable mental health conditions. So maybe you don't have generalized anxiety disorder, but you do struggle with anxiety. Um, So you you would have to address that because what you find is many times um, co-occurring conditions, by definition, they don't need each other to exist. But as one worsens, the other one tends to worsen. As one gets better, the other one tends to get better. Or in some cases, you find the opposite. So for instance, somebody who maybe has a, a, a severe trauma background or PTSD, They enter treatment, they stop drinking or whatever it is. And next thing you know, they are like out of their mind with the trauma, the PTSD and those symptoms. And people go, what's going on? Like they're improving their life. And what it is, is like basically their coping skill. For those feelings, those emotions, those thoughts, their coping skill went away because that coping skill was the alcohol or the coping skill was the drug. So now they're left without other coping skills, and they don't know how to manage what they've been managing for ten years by drinking. Um, so that kind of run wild. So one of the big things for anyone who's entering recovery, whether it be for a mental health condition or addiction, is to really do an inventory of your coping skills. What works for you? What have you wanted to try but never did, um, and then a couple of things that you never thought of but you're you're willing to try, um, and you may find that not all of them are going to work, right? Um, but you might also find that some of them work very effectively, and you also will learn what works in what situation. Um, so, for instance, if I'm if I'm impatient and one of my coping skills is taking a walk, I might not really be able to do that, right? Because I'm going to be walking around on a ward. Um, and it might not be enough for me, especially if I'm like a nature lover and I like to be outdoors. So I got to find another coping skill that I can substitute. Um, so really what you want to do is, uh, you want to try to hit almost everything that you can <laughs> to see what sticks. Um, And then you take those and you utilize that as part of your toolbox. Like I always talk with people about adding a tool to their toolbox. Like the toolboxes get heavy, but you can never have enough tools, right? So if something's going to work for you, or even if it's going to work for you in like one specific situation, you use it. Uh, Another part is, um, and this kind of relates to the self-help support groups. There's some people who believe that addiction is like a loss of connection, So they would say you need to build connection with others uh, and connection to the self in order to kind of manage that or overcome it. And a big part of that is finding others that can support you. Um, While it comes down to us having to really manage our own behaviors and things like that, the bottom line is we don't have to do it alone and we shouldn't have to do it alone. So joining some type of support group or having just a few people that you can that you can trust and you form that bond with, whether it be a family member, friend, or even like a professional or something like that, um, can can go really far. Uh, and that can also help keep us accountable. Um, and then when times are in the time of crisis where we're hitting that um, the abstinence violation effect or the efforts like we have somebody that we can call to kind of, you know, talk us away from that behavior. Or, you know, if we're going, if, if we struggle with alcohol use and we're going to a party and all of a sudden, like our plan is failing, we have somebody we can call and they're going to pick us up or they're going to, you know, they're going to call us back and say, Oh, you need to get home now. Who cares if it's a BS excuse, they're getting you out of that situation. Um, so it's always helpful to, to not do it alone. So um, to go back to the original question, I would say um, really, uh, Increase your coping skills. Try new things, uh, including some like holistic care for for mind body, uh, and also um, getting just outside support. But
1: that's you know you you mentioned uh, holistic care, um, and you know uh, you know Doc Mock shot me some research uh, before this about you know some things that folks have tried. Um, that, that help and, you know, have, have shown in, in, in some studies that m- might have been helping folks and, you know, and and you may or may not have had experience with folks that you help, but um, you know, first of those is, is, is being yoga, right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, yoga helps uh, reduce uh, cortisol, right. Um, increase, which is that, uh, that, that hormone that kind of uh, makes you feel kind of down and out, right. Um, for lack of a better term. Um, and, uh, I've heard you say GABA, I've heard Doc Mock say GABA. Um, what I'd like to do is, is talk about what that is a little bit. Um, and, um, and how that can affect, you know, it seems from what you're saying, like a lot of these things come hand in hand, right? Like your mood, right? How you feel and that, that can feed into a, um, an addiction, um so can you talk about you know some of your experiences with you know these other holistic things like you know yoga meditation right art mm-hmm. therapy um and you know and, and what you've seen in in your career right.
2: So so we mentioned dopamine and serotonin but there's many other neurotransmitters so GABA is one of them uh, norepinephrine epinephrine some of them aren't maybe technically neurotransmitters but they're all kind of chemicals that um, regulate not only our mental processes and moods, but our physical processes, right? So it goes, the physical and mental go hand in hand. A lot of people don't realize that, um, which is actually also another part of CBT, kind of sometimes recognizing the physical to see how it's impacting your mental and managing that. So, um, GABA is an interesting one because GABA is related to anxiety. Um, and when we talk about like alcohol use, uh, even if you don't struggle with an alcohol use disorder, if you've ever had a night of kind of heavy drinking and the next day you woke up and had a little more anxiety or you felt like a little guilty or something like that, or you just didn't, you kind of got that that hole in your chest feeling. Um, some of that is related to the alcohol, literally burning your esophagus on the way down in your stomach. But some of that is actually, uh, it, it's, it's anxiety. And what happens is for lack of a better term, the alcohol is short circuits your GABA and, and kind of screws you up for the next day. Um so like all of these things are related the more you learn about them. Um when it comes to like those holistic stuff so like yoga uh you mentioned uh, I think meditation if something is going to help put those processes in balance and it works for you, then definitely utilize it. Um, Some people might struggle with certain things. Uh, For example, with meditation, sometimes people who have PTSD or a trauma background may have a hard time meditating, uh, especially if they're trying to do really like a mind clearing meditation as opposed to a guided meditation. Because what they might find is like, as they try to clear their mind, it's just like racing thoughts and things like that. Or a lot of meditations will go, start with a deep breath. And what happens is they take that deep breath in It floods the body with oxygen and it activates their fight or flight response, which we know is the response to like run or kick ass. It's really like fight, flight, or freeze. But what happens is if you have like that trauma background or maybe even like a high anxiety background, you're right at the precipice of like being in fight or flight at all times. So if you go to meditate and you start off going you're bringing all that oxygen and your body hits the switch. And now you're in like almost a panic mode, <laughs> panic attack. So it's always good when you're doing that stuff to start off with like a normal breath in, regardless of what the guided meditator might tell you and, and, and see how that impacts you. Um, but anything that's going to put this stuff in balance is critical. You mentioned cortisol and we know high levels of cortisol have a lot of, uh, physical impact, including, I believe like weight gain and things like that. Um, but in, a, in addiction, um, what you find sometimes is people also get like these low levels of cortisol. So after like repeated use of substances, their cortisol levels are lower than normal. And what happens is like uh, for somebody who has a regular level of cortisol, you introduce something like alcohol into the system. The system almost treats it as like an invader or an attacker and it, it, it adjusts that cortisol appropriately. If you have low levels of cortisol, that check and balance isn't working right. Right. And the thing, same thing happens with your other neurotransmitters. That's why it, um, kind of addiction occurs, the more you put something in your body that's like flooding your system with like dopamine, for an example, um, the more your body adapts to having those levels of dopamine. So if, if I'm like doing cocaine all the time and, you know, I'm just blasting my circuits with like dopamine, when I go to do something regularly, like um, hold hands with someone I love, eat a good meal, maybe have sex, I, I do something that like you enjoy it doesn't give me the same impact because it's not releasing as much dopamine as it should, or my, my um, neurotransmitters, like the receptors in my brain have adopted to like needing more. Right. So um, any of these like therapies uh, can help bring those systems back into regulation. Hopefully Um, we know that some brain damage can't be recouped. But the idea is that our brains are plastic enough, especially with um, physical exercise and, and things like that, that we can adjust. Um, meditation is also great, just stress reduction, um, as long as like you can tolerate it. Like I said, yoga, um, I would have to maybe find the article and pass it over to one of you guys, but... I recently read a um, dissertation. It was like a 98 page dissertation on yoga and addiction recovery. Um, so it was pretty enlightening. It was, it was a little tricky maybe for a LA lay person to read, but um, you know, they, they studied yoga and how people in uh, addiction recovery have used it. Art therapy. Um, I'll say this. If you're doing art or you're doing art in therapy, it's probably not art therapy Right, so art therapy is a really specific, um, field when it comes to therapy and there are certifications and licensures that go with that. So if you're going to do art therapy, cause you're interested in it, make sure you find somebody who is an actual art therapist and not somebody who's just willing to judge your, uh, your paintings that you're doing or your drawings a- at home. But if that's a stress reducing activity for you, then, then draw and paint all you want while you're at home. Right. Um, there was another one you had mentioned, uh, did you say equine therapy here?
1: Well, no. Uh, no, but I mean uh, that, that this is something that you know. Uh, you know, I think Doc can uh, kind of enlighten you know about the different I guess supplements and <laughs> uh, uh, you know the, the 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 things that we can now take and not besides do uh, that can help with uh, with these behaviors.
2: Right. So um, I will really. I'm going to kind of volley that to doc to really talk about the supplements. Um, as somebody who's not a medical doctor or nutritionist, um, I have to have these conversations with people I work with about supplementation, but I, I shouldn't really make recommendations. What I will say though, is that we know that long-term substance use makes changes in the body, including depleting certain nutrients and supplements in our body that it needs. Um, and without getting those back into our system, um, we're not going to recover Appropriately, mentally or physically, um, same thing. If you're going through like withdrawal or something like that, there's certain supplements, certain vitamins, certain nutrients that your body needs that would help with that. Um, so, but with that being said, I'm going to kind of volley it over to Doc, and maybe he can shed light on that.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, there are so many supplements that can help your addiction issue. Uh, I'll I'll start it off that way. Just getting back to the effects of uh, a lot of these other ho- more holistic sort of therapies. A lot of them do actually change your brainwave patterns. A lot of them do mitigate your neurochemistry. Yoga is kind of like a twofer because not only are you upregulating GABA or that kind of like evening out hormone that you have, but you're also Im- improving pain, right? If you have a, a chronic injury, you may be smoothing out some of the muscles that are around it or breaking up some of the fibrosis that's there in the fascia, the lining around the muscles. So it's it's like a twofer. But you know, in terms of vitamin deficiencies, Um, you know, one of my, one of the favorite books of mine, um, which is biochemical individuality written by Roger Williams. Um, He actually has done a lot of study regarding, you know, biochemistry, the impact of vitamin deficiencies and addiction. And what he found in a study um, I believe it was back in uh, 2011 was that he, he noticed that a lot of people with addiction issues are deficient in vitamin B5. Um, And so Therefore, what he did subsequently was he had those patients undergo supplementation with B vitamins, and it actually improved their addiction potential. I think the most classic example of B vitamin deficiency is with alcoholism, right? People that are markedly deficient in vitamin B1 or thiamine get actually a form of dementia called Wernicke's encephalopathy, which causes eye problems as well as dementia, and this can be a potentially fatal and irreversible condition if le- not left um, treated. Also B vitamin deficiencies can affect your heart. Um, but just switching gears again, back to uh, addiction. So choline, we talked about in our alcohol podcast and in that circumstance, what we're talking about is choline binding to other alcohol breakdown products and gunking up the work, sticking around your system for 14 days. That's why we talked about when you take your time, away from alcohol just to see how it makes you feel, you should do it for at least two weeks because that's when this phosphatidylcholine compound disappears. But citicoline is available in supplement format. And uh, when given to people that do have addiction issues, um, it, w- it actually reduced uh, addiction symptoms. Uh, in particular, researchers looked at cocaine addiction, and it's because it tends to even out the role of uh, a do- dopamine, which we talked about as kind of that addiction hormone. Jackie P, you know, we've talked about vitamin D and omega-3s.
1: OMG, omega-3. <laughs> omega threes. OMG, omega three. Listen, I, I, I omega three just needs to be put in everything. They need to sell that as. I mean, what there isn't anything I've read that omega three. I mean, you may you may both. Obviously, since I'm the layman here, I'm just, you know, talking about what I see. So there's, you know, anecdotal at, at least, but omega-3 seems to help everything. If you if you don't have omega-3 in your system, in your diet, implement it because you may be fixing something that you don't even know is broken right now. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, omega-3, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to take away from you, Doc Mock, but, you know, I, I get excited about omega-3. Uh, <laughs> um, Omega three, actually, uh, they showed that smokers, right. Um, which, you know, Chris, as you said is an addiction, which I think everyone would agree, um, have lower levels of Omega three. Um, and, uh, folks who, uh, treated with Omega three supplements had a reduction in cravings. And, um, I saw that also, uh, elevated Omega three intake helps reduce the stress and lower cortisol. Um, so it can, it also lowered the desire for alcohol in mice. Um, I don't know how they measured desire in mice. Um, but that's a whole nother conversation we could talk about, but, <laughs> number um, of weeks, maybe, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and also, uh, researchers showed that, uh, omega three, uh, fat acids of uh, folks who were supplemented actually for cocaine addicts relapsed less. Um, so, I mean, I am not a doctor, I'm not, I've made that very clear. I'm not a professional in anything medical, but if you can slide some omega-3 in your diet, whether it's in supplements, a good supplement, or some good fish, add it to the to the routine because OMG, I, I just came up with the OMG omega-3. I'm gonna try to come up with something better. I but I, I'm, it. I'm, I'm loving omega-3. Every time I see it, <laughs> I'm like, yes. Omega three, what do you got for me? <laughs> um, but you know, doc mock, if, if you want to kind of take away and, and, and talk a little bit about, you know, the other, you know, um, supplements that, you know, we've research has shown that might help with other, um,
0: yeah. Addictions. I, yeah. yeah. I think that in addition to omega threes, most people don't get enough vitamin D, especially in places where there's no sun most of the year, namely, uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Um, <laughs> you know, vitamin D again is thought to be not just a vitamin, but a hormone. It crosses freely across that barrier between your circulatory system and your brain. And it does make you feel better. It does help with depression. It does help with anxiety. In addition to things like seasonal depression that are specifically dependent upon degrees of sunlight, Um, magnesium and zinc, you know, due to deficiencies in our soil, right our we're over tilling we we lose topsoil due to um monocropping and a lot of our foods are lacking magnesium and zinc and and these also have shown benefit in numerous types of addiction opiate addiction nicotine addiction amphetamine and cocaine addiction um and then two that maybe you haven't thought about is acetyl carnitine now you know chris guess where carnitine comes from you know it's like it, it has carna in it, which is means carnivore. So you can get it from meat sources, but, um, carnitine can also be taken as part of a detox protocol. It's really good for alcohol, alcohol consumption. Um, and then glutathione, um, what glutathione does in the liver in my, in my field is it's part of the filtration process. So toxins come in the liver, filters the blood and it, uses n-acetylcysteine or glutathione to drive a lot of these processes to break down the toxins into ways that the body can use them so i think with that um you know we've we've talked about a lot of good things but we do need to go to a commercial break and then we'll come back and we'll ask uh chris a few uh questions in the hot seat so we'll be right back what's going on maximal beings it's doc mock here many of you are returning to the gym now but some are not going back Regardless of what you plan, Rogue has got the right gear to fit your needs. I personally own a barbell set and love it. The black op shorts are sweat resistant and flexible for getting deep in your squats. Head on over to maximalbeing.com rogue for our referral link. Order three items and they ship for free. And as usual, it's Doc Mock and I'm here to maximize your pathway to wellness. If you're stuck at home and cannot make it to the grocery store, delivery may be the best way to stay clean and healthy instacart is the national leader in the direct to home delivery service with numerous major chains and food from smaller stores you can get those local veggies sent directly to your doorstep head on over to maximalbean.com instacart and maximize your nutrition today and we're back to jackie p i think you have a few questions for our wonderful guests
1: I have a few questions, actually, and also I may, I may, uh, I may call a little bit audible and add two more questions of my own because I'm actually just generally have a question.
2: Fire away, man.
1: (laughs) Um, So I always hear when people say, "Oh, I'm a caffeine holic, a sugar holic." I'm this. They just add, they attack holic on the back of things, right? Um, I mean, you know, Doc mock knows, and I've said it many times, podcasts. I am. I used to be it still am, I think a sugar fiend. I love sugar. I mean, like, you know, to an addiction level, right. Can, is addiction, can it be in any, anything else? Right. Can, can someone have like addiction level, uh, issues with things outside of what you see as far as alcohol and, 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 and substance abuse or,
2: sure. um, kind of a little bit of a loaded question because, um, in our field, what we utilize is the, uh, DSM-5, Diagnostic Statistical Manual version five um, to make diagnoses. Now, caffeine and sugar are not named substances that you can have a substance use disorder for. However, we do know that um, people can get caffeine tolerance, caffeine dependence, that type of thing. Um, What I should say is that while dependence and tolerance are two of the 11 criteria for uh, substance use disorder, Just because you have dependence or tolerance does not mean that you have a disorder, right? So um, you mentioned morphine earlier and pain medication. Anyone who's on those uh, long-term and even some short-terms, they are going to get a dependence on them, meaning if you stop it, like a physical dependence. So if you stop it, they're going to have withdrawal and they're gonna get a tolerance. So if you take it, you're, it's not gonna give you the same effect over time taking the same amount, right? But those two things alone are not enough to say addiction. And, and I think what separates out addiction are, is like the, the repeated use, the compulsive use despite other negative consequences in the person's life. Um, so while dependence and tolerance are criteria, they alone don't make addiction. Um, and that's where I think sugar and caffeine kind of fall into that category. I mean, you can argue that some people use sugar and caffeine to the point where it's detrimental to their physical health. Um, and that would actually meet one of the criteria for a, a substance use disorder. Um, and if you combine it with like a uh, tolerance or dependence or something like that, then yeah, um, By definition, it could. However, those are not substances that you can make that diagnosis for. So um, as a clinician in the field, I would say no, but I would say that they do have the potential for somebody to kind of misuse or compulsively use um, to the point where it's impacting their health. And we've seen that, right? Like, uh diabetics who can't control their sugar intake or are not willing to um people who drink so much caffeine that their their blood pressure is like through the roof or they're showing up in the ER with like a uh, heart palp- help, uh, heart palpitations or something like that um so it does happen uh but in terms of an addictive disorder you wouldn't diagnose them uh not if you were following the DSM5 when it comes to other behaviors the only thing that's in the DSM5 is actually gambling um, so internet use, porn, uh, shopping, all of those things are kind of up in the air and debatable if they are, um, we'll say addictions to use uh, you know, a term. Gambling is the only one that right now, according to DSM-5, is uh, like a problem disorder. Uh, the others are being explored. They're being explored also by like the world health organization. And when the DSM five came out, I think it was 2013, 2012. There wasn't enough data at the time to say that those behaviors are their own addictive disorders. Mm. Um, so, you know, as, as my credential, I, I actually couldn't even diagnose those things. A psychiatrist might or put them under something else. So they might put them under like, um, uh, compulsive disorder compulsive behavior and anxiety disorder things of that but they don't fall into kind of that category we normally look at as addictions but you will see that being called an addict you know an addiction especially like uh gaming internet porn there's even treatment places that say they offer treatment for porn addiction and stuff like that and there are 12 step meetings for it as well um, but medically it's not necessarily considered an addiction by the, uh, the definition that we use right now.
1: Okay. That's, this, this that's good to know. Um, you know, people throw a term around a lot. It's, it's good to know that there's, there's, you know, there's, uh, a definitely, uh, like a, a formatted definition for it. Um, so three questions for you, um, Chris, the first is what is your, favorite exercise
2: sure i struggle with questions that say what are your favorite however (laughs) this one has a hands-down winner squats squats i love me some squats man and i'm not talking about like cruddy body weight squats where you're just going up and down i'm talking about put that bar on your back you know ask the grass and pushing it up so okay um, you know I, i i tried to fall in love with deadlifts just couldn't do it um you know, and also to my form kind of stinks and I tend to push myself a little bit too much. So every time I make some good progress in deadlifts, I end up pulling something. Mm. Squats have always been a friend of mine
0: though. Squats. Never forget the legs, ladies and gentlemen, oh, never forget the legs.
1: Don't skip a leg I'll t- day. T- I'll tell you what mm.
2: squats and deadlifts too. They are such, um, even though the focus is legs or back respectively, uh, are such a complete like whole body exercise and they get, uh, every other system in your body kind of like rooting for you, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. um, you know, they kick up that adrenaline, they get the blood flowing, they activate all types of hormones and uh, they're awesome. <laughs> yeah.
1: Squats, squats. Every time I do lower body, I start with squats. Cause I never feel more yoked after <laughs> pushing up some weight, doing squats. So I yeah, True I have story. to say, I, I, I might be in your camp with that one, Chris. All right. Um, Okay. Uh, second question. Um, what is the craziest diet you have been on or tried or heard of?
2: Okay. Well, I'm not, I'm not someone who really like does diets. Uh, I will like calorie count once in a while to keep myself accountable. In fact, I've been doing that since May and I've dropped 27 pounds, just counting, Um, not even trying to meet my goals, just counting. (laughs) Right. So, um, but I will say that I did read a few years back uh, Engineering the Alpha, I forget the author. Um and he talked a lot about uh inter- intermittent fasting or a version of that. And I tried it for a very brief period of time. I didn't even really give it a good chance, but I tried it and um I found that at the time I just couldn't do it. Um I'm the type of person, I'm always hungry no matter what. I always feel I need to eat. And I was also doing a Wendler 531 program for powerlifting at the time. Um and when I'm lifting like that, I have to, I have to eat, I have to eat a lot and I have to put in a lot of calories. And I just could not do the, the fasting part of it. Even if I broke it down to like, you know, like a smaller fast, it, it just wasn't flying for me. And in terms of diets, that's probably the the craziest I've tried, um, craziest I've heard of. I don't know. I mean, if a diet exists that somebody made up, it's out there. I don't know. <laughs> There's probably one where people eat like cigarette butts all day long or something. but <laughs>
0: I, I will, uh, I'll chime in here about the intermittent fasting. So, you know, I, I do think that it's not for everybody. Um, the science is good though. I mean, the new England journal of medicine article reviewing everything. Yeah. Yeah. Reviewing everything from animal studies all the way to, you know, now we're seeing a lot of human studies start to come out. It's really compelling, but it does take time for your hunger hormones, ghrelin and your fullness hormone or satiety hormone leptin to kind of recalibrate. Um, And at that point in time, which is usually about four to six weeks, that's when hunger becomes a little more voluntary. But another important point that I will tell the people that are doing intermittent fasting is that make sure you're getting enough calories (laughs) and your macros during the time that you are refeeding. So I eat 3,200 calories every day. I have it in those two meals. I get it in no problem. And, you know, if you're both in a calorie deficit and intermittent fasting, you're going to, eventually it's going to catch up to you and, and it'll probably catch up in about a week and you'll just crash and you'll refeed. So, you know, go slow. If you need help with that, we're here for you. Back to you, Jack. You, you said
2: okay. four to six weeks. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think I gave it four to six hours. So I-
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what time is it? 1030. Oh, I can't do this. I gotta eat. <laughs> you know, also, you know, uh, a lot, uh, a lot of folks, um, 3,200 of those calories, uh, Doc Mock takes in twenty two hundred. Actually, goes just to his calf muscles. So a little <laughs> unknown fact. Um, <laughs> like uh, factories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I I am an intermittent faster as well, but that's just because I've never liked breakfast food, so it was like an easy way to make the decision seem health conscious. Uh, but uh, it mm. it does work for me and what I do. But yeah, I did. I was hungry a lot, and because of Doc and Aaron Graham, they, I was under eating for sure. Cause I, I'm a AM workout. I wake up early, I work out oh, and I was waking up and I was sucking wind. So, uh, you gotta make sure you, you ease into it and, and, you know, small controllable steps and then, you know, you'll get there yeah. or you might hate it and just, you know, do something well, else.
2: I, I kind of did the, uh, the abstinence violation effect there yeah. and, uh, <laughs> I just kind of mailed it in after like yeah. a couple of days, you know, I just yeah. wasn't for me. Maybe uh, yeah. Another time.
1: Yeah. Um, and then third and final question, what is your favorite health book and why?
2: So I'm going to, I'm going to name a couple. Um, again, this is a favorites question. So I struggle because I do a lot of reading on health, especially like mental health and addictions. I mean, you know, my, my professional life becomes my leisure, right? Um, so in the past year, I read a book called the, uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck by Mark Manson. And, um, I'll say this, like I wasn't always a fan of his style of writing or like, uh, when I read, so like I read it out loud in my head as if I, somebody saying it, um, and he could be kind of abrasive or like egotistical at times. Um, but a lot of the content in it, I relate it to personally, especially when I was younger, like early twenties and things like that. So, um, for me, it was an interesting read and it made me kind of reflect back and uh, think about a lot of different things in my life. Um, Two other books I'll mention uh, since we're talking about addictions. Uh, the first is In the Realm of hum- Hungry Ghost by Gabor Mate. Um, he is an addictions psychiatrist who worked out of a methadone program in Vancouver. And his theory is that, like all addiction stems from trauma. And he basically, the book is a mixture of his experiences at this clinic which is in like the skid row of Vancouver with like the most difficult population and kind of like the clinical trauma and addiction connection piece, the second book, and I'm going to butcher the author's name and I apologize because I love the work. Um, it's called unbroken brain and it's by Maia year. Sl- and, um, she talks about addiction, not in the medical model. So it's kind of a counteractive viewpoint to the current medical disease model, um, but a lot of what she talks about makes sense. Even if you are true and you believe like the disease model, like I said, many models are correct in their own way. Some are wrong in other ways. Um, nothing fits one hundred percent, and the medical model is just what it's accepted. She she kind of looks as it looks at it as more of a. Kind of like a learning disorder or a developmental disorder, uh, and uh, so it's just a different viewpoint. And a lot of what she says makes sense. So if you're you're interested in addiction and you want to see a different viewpoint, uh, I would I would pick that up. She she's done a number of other kind of works uh, in the addiction field.
0: So, but thank you so much for the share, and uh, you know, for the listeners out there, we appreciate your time and you know your community. Um, I think this has been an amazing and inspiring. Uh, look into a a condition or series of conditions that is often stigmatized. And so know that if you are suffering, there are a lot of people out there that can help you. Um, And we recommend going to see a licensed uh, professional to discuss this condition with you. Um, Know that there are neurochemical bases. There are anatomic differences. There are a lot of therapies in addition to cognitive behavioral therapy that you can use um, including meditation, including yoga, including uh, art therapy, and a number of supplements. Um, if you have any other questions, please reach out at team at maximalbean.com. Um, and then you can also reach out to our friend Chris. You want to tell people where they can reach you and find you on social media?
2: Sure. So um know your why recovery is a website. It's just knowyourwhyrecovery.com. That's Y-O-U-R, right. And, um, we are also on Facebook and Instagram. So if you just search, know your why recovery, you'll find us. And then, um, on those links, there will also be some email addresses. So if you have questions, uh, concerns, if there's specific content that you want to see, just send it on over. We'll take a look at it. We, the community exists for the people who are visiting it, right? So we want to hear from you. We want to know, you know, what we can do to be of more service to you, um, with that being said, I want to thank you guys again for this opportunity, um, and I also I want to thank the listeners. Uh, hopefully, they're able to follow me. Uh, I start talking about something sometimes a little passionately, and I I get I get a little tangential in my speech, and I try to circle back around. And uh, so I, I know I can be difficult. So if you if you at least pulled something out of this, then uh, congratulations, and uh, <laughs> hopefully it uh, you know made you think about something a little bit differently. So.
0: No, it was really amazing, and um, you know, you know, again, thank you for your wisdom. I I learn something new every single day when I read Know Your Why recoveries uh, information out there, and it's it's free. I mean, it's it's yeah. amazing. Um, and special thank you to my co-host Jackie P. He always keeps me on the uh, on the straight and narrow here. You know, keeps me humble, and um, I learn so much from his big big brain every day when we just yeah. share thoughts. And um, so, thank you. Um, so as always everybody, uh, this is doc mock and I'm here with Jackie P and Chris from know your why recovery. And we are here to maximize your pathway to wellness. What's going on maximal beings doc mock here. If you haven't done so already, leave us comment and hit the subscribe button. Let your friends and family know that way we can get the word out and continue to bash the bro science.